air hostesses, baristas, sex workers, housewives, best friends? What do these types of worker have in common? According to writer and organiser Alva Gottby, they are all involved in a form of social reproduction that we should start thinking about as emotional labour, the kind of paid and unpaid care work responsible for binding the fabric of capitalist society together. In Alva's new book, They Call It Love, The Politics of Emotional Life, she takes up the mantle of the Wages for Housework movement and asks how we might apply its lessons and provocations to our most intimate lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and this week I talked with Alva about social reproduction, care work, and disentangling the ways we love from the systems that exploit us. Alva, hello. Thanks for having me. Your work is in conversation with the idea of social reproduction. We hear this word, this phrase being bandied around a lot. And so for the uninitiated, I would love us to just have a bit of a chat about what we are talking about when we talk about social reproduction. What is this process that we're trying to describe? The theory of social reproduction is basically that capitalism depends not just on um, the production of like goods and services, but also um, that the reproduction of workers. And what we mean by that is that as people, we all have a lot of needs uh, for food, shelter, clothes, and so on, that sort of need to be satisfied in some, some way. And some of that we can do through buying various things, but those things sort of in themselves can't really meet uh, all the needs that we have. So if these needs aren't really met, people would really struggle just um, to live um, and to feel well enough to keep going to work um, every day. And individual capitalists may have like very little interest in what workers do after they sort of clock off from work um, and go home. They just expect people to show up every day and just being able to perform their work. What people have to do in order to meet their needs is we also put in like a lot of other forms of work. So people spend time cooking, cleaning, looking after children, looking after relatives, sort of comforting their friends. All of those things are part of what we call social reproduction. But there's also broader in the sense that we might include education, uh, we might include things like nursing um, and other forms of wage employment. Sometimes for the state, like people work for the NHS, for example, because the state has sort of decided that it's worth putting in some money, not enough money, um, <laughs> into um, reproducing people so that they are sort of able to keep going to work, that they feel well enough to keep going to work. So there's this uh, general sense of social reproduction in which that we are kind of basically uh, enabled to survive as sort of human creatures who need a certain amount of warmth and shelter and whatnot. There's a sort of a more kind of targeted, if you like, sense of social reproduction where certain forms of work mm -hmm. uh, are needed to be performed by certain kinds of industries and certain forms of capitalism and whatnot. Um, and they need workers that are specifically enabled to be able to, to do that. 
Yeah, sure. So that's um, why there's, as well as social reproduction, you might have heard the term reproductive labor, which is trying to sort of name quite a broad range um, of work that people do. And that might be in healthcare, childcare, elder care, but also you might think of like working in a restaurant or other ways to like um, provide food for people um, as a sort of reproductive labor. So it is this quite um, sort of broad concept. And it's also important to think about like how some of that work people do because that's their like paid job. Um, Mm -hmm. But some of it we do just because that's what the people around us sort of need um, in order to have what they need and like feel reasonably well. I think a lot of people are living in a state of like not feeling that they have like all their needs met all the time. But we are sort of, I think a lot of the things we do within our personal relationship is like trying to um, make sure that some of those needs are met sort of as actually quite a sort of minimal level, even though um, bosses or even the welfare state aren't really there to meet those needs. Often in um, economics, uh, you will find this division made between uh, the productive economy, the kind of tasks, if you like, that are performed for a wage to make stuff or to show up for an employment type job. Um, And the kind of stuff that happens often in the domestic sphere, often for free, um, that we would think of as like a reproductive work or domestic work. Many generations now of of feminist scholars have pushed back against uh, this division between sort of proper economic work and domestic work. So I'm wondering what you think is is the importance of that division? Like, why are many people, and I guess uh, sort of you could say um, capitalism so invested in maintaining that division? An important thing is that um, capitalists just aren't interested in like paying for it. Um, (laughs) And capitalist society is set up in a way to say a lot of these things that you need to survive or feel good um, are like just like that's your private responsibility that's maybe that will concern you um, maybe your family members maybe your friends but it's not really our job to sort of make sure that you have the things that you need what they do is give you some money a wage and that is really sort of paying for often what's quite a minimal sort of set of things that you need to live Um, so that might be paying rent uh, or a mortgage, food, clothes, transport, and that kind of thing. But it doesn't really cover a lot of the the other um, things that we actually need. So I think from the perspective of, of capitalists, it's quite convenient um, if that's not their responsibility, if there is actually sort of a sphere of life that they don't really have to worry too much about I think what's important here is that there's like a really, really strong ideological investment in this division as well. Um, so as much as we might think that it's isn't really real in some ways, you know, there's a there isn't like a strict boundary between the productive sphere on one hand and the like reproductive sphere um, or like unpaid reproductive labor uh, on the other hand that things sort of tend to shift a bit back and forth, some uh, reproductive 
um, labor might be paid and some of it's unpaid. People might pay for some childcare, but not all of it and so on. There's this idea that these things should be separate and that meeting our needs is so best done within the family, within the private sphere, within the home. And even though the family is sometimes regarded to be in like in crisis or um, we don't really have the same um, strict um, division of these spheres we did in, for example, like the Victorian era or in the 1950s. Um, I think there's still quite a lot of investment in this idea that care happens in the home. We should care for the people who are close to us and also I sort of expect care from them in return. And obviously it's great if people are caring for each other. I think the issues <laughs> sort of with this um, idea um, is firstly, it sort of allows capitalists to be like, that's not our problem. Um, while at the same time, um, putting a lot, quite a lot of effort into trying to make people reproduce in certain ways that sort of maintains their dependency on being part of a wage relation so that people like can't like withdraw from capitalism even though we might want to um, <laughs> because it often assume that there's someone there who can take care of us and for a lot of people that just isn't the case like some people aren't part of families. They might have families that live far away or they might find that like the relationships that they do have aren't really enough um, to meet all of their needs. There's just a lot of people who like don't really have the sort of personal relationships that we need because as like social beings, we have a lot of needs that can't um, that we can't meet ourselves that sort of have to be met by other people. Could you talk to me a bit about how the family unit as a sort of technology of, of regulating this work gets kind of bound up with our ideas of love and how we talk about love? The family, as we currently think about it, is a fairly recent invention. If you think about the family as a sort of mother, father, children unit, that became the prominent social ideal from the start of the 19th century. It's kind of coincided with the Industrial Revolution and the separation that you had there between production, often in factories, and the domestic sphere. So there you have a sort of spatial separation as well between what was considered work and what was considered family, life, love, uh, whatever you want to call it. That was also reflected in ideological production at the time very strongly emphasized the need for those separate spheres and a very like strict gendered division of labor where men were sort of going out into the world of capitalist competition, working and then coming home to the domestic sphere that was women's sphere, which was seen as a sort of reward uh, for all that hard work and also the, the sort of the reason why you would do that, why you would like work so hard every day in order to provide for your family. 
And this is kind of important because the thing that gets raised here is like all the work that happens within the domestic sphere. You have this ideal of like um, the wife and mother as the sort of people who are just like there to meet other people's needs and like don't really have any needs of their own. Being a sort of moral and spiritual guidance, um, this is all like very like high Victorian um, ideals. There's this idea that there's an opposition between work and love. I think there was like a really strong push um, in that time to sort of say, this is all done out of love. So therefore, it's not really work. And obviously, it's quite ironic to think about that because a lot of the work that did happen within homes was done by servants and like not out of love at all. Um, but <laughs> that that was also sort of written out of the picture. I think it's interesting to think about this um, sort of opposition between work and love because love is really the thing that comes to sort of discipline this in a way like this opposition between work and love also means that it's like really really difficult to say actually no I don't want to do this I have my own needs maybe I need to put those needs first at some point so you have this sense that women in this arrangement of the family are put in a position where they are constantly have to be available to sort of look after other people, to care for other people. And if they're not doing that, that means that you are a terrible mother. Um, if you dare put your own needs above the needs of your children, for example, if you're not constantly around, you would probably like also be considered quite a bad like wife or partner. Uh, if you are like not being there to like emotionally support your husband and it's just like a way of extracting quite a lot of like unpaid work from typically women um, sort of within their families. You talk a lot about the wages for housework movement which comes out of sort of uh, workerist feminism or Marxist feminism in the 20th century. Can you tell us a bit about um, that movement and how it kind of pushes back against uh, ways in which the categories of work and love are collapsed into each other. Wages for Housework started out as like an international movement, which is quite interesting to think about the way that is started with a sort of shared experience that a lot of women had. And this is the early 70s in 1972. Um, so you're kind of in an interesting historical um period where um, a lot of women are still housewives, don't have any money of their own, basically. Um, some women have started to work within the sort of productive economy or for a wage, but the kinds of work that they do um, are often similar things that they were doing within their homes. So it's things like nursing, childcare, it's cleaning, they often still sort of do a very traditional set of like feminized types of work. A lot of feminists of that time were like thinking about this, partly because the left of the time was still very much focused on the work that was happening within factories and didn't really care that much about all of the things that women were also doing 
sort of within their homes. So a lot of um, feminists were thinking about this and started to to sort of organize around it. And a group of Marxist feminists from Italy, the United Kingdom, the United States, I think also France at that point, um, sort of met up in, in Italy in 1972 to talk about what they were going to do about this and like try to develop a shared perspective. And that movement was active for a number of years. In fact, a few of the Wages for Housework groups are still around today and still sort of doing activism like through that perspective. But what they were basically saying is that because this work is so essential for how capitalism functions, none of this productive work, none of the work in the factory could happen um, if uh, women weren't at home, like cooking, cleaning, looking after children, um, looking after elderly people. And so all of this work is a sort of precondition for um, the like formal productive economy. And yet no one really seemed to think it's there. Like it's mm. completely invisible. The sort of male dominated left um, like had sort of decided that this wasn't important. That was just like a sort of um, lifestyle problem and it's not the sort of real economy. So they met quite a lot of resistance when they were making this argument. It was not a very popular um, argument at the time. And so the central demand um, after which the movement takes its name of, uh, of securing wages for housework is sort of critically um, unfulfillable under capitalism, right? You start paying people a fair wage for the kinds of social reproductive work that they do, the whole system breaks down. So I'm wondering what the role is of that kind of critical demand, like the demand mm. that could could never be fulfilled when we start thinking about emotional labor as well, not just kind of like preparing food and yeah, taking sure. care of kids, what kind of thing. A thing that I really appreciate about Wages for Housework what, was that they wrote all of these quite sort of provocative, like they pamphlets, um, these manifestos um, that are sort of using the term like labor and saying that something is work as a way of like getting people to like really reflect on all of these things that are happening but um, are sort of just ignored most of the time not seen as like proper political issues at all. I guess the point of that is also to sort of denaturalize a lot of the things that we just like take for granted because it's seen as like a private issue, because it's seen as something that people just do for one another um, out of love. And so it's not really a political issue and really starting to like grapple with this uh, question of like, if this is work then like who is doing it why is it that that's done um so much by women why is it that this work is seen as something that people need to take care of like on their own like in their homes in the private sphere and why is that not something that is like a collective responsibility so I think the demand for a wage like is a is a provocation and it is a way of saying like actually the capitalist class could never um 
afford to pay for all that we're we're doing um and it's like inherently exploitative to expect that people mostly women are just going to do this work and so i think the thing that i like find quite like interesting about that perspective is that it's like using this framework of um sort of politicizing denaturalizing a lot of the things that we are just expected to to do uh, for one another for free and really thinking about like very like intimate things that we are sort of not usually thinking about as political issues at all and it's often quite uncomfortable to think about them as political issues so when we're uh, politicizing and denaturalizing certain kinds of activities certain kinds of ways of relating to one another you bring in this concept of emotional labor um sort of broadly speaking coined by Ali Hochschild and uh, could you talk to us about um sort of how she uses that in her work and i guess how you've expanded it Ali Russell Hochschild is a sociologist and she coined this term emotional labor and it's become very influential um and is probably one of those things that people like debate on twitter quite a lot um (laughs) but often with a sort of like horrified how could you call that work of caring for people or looking after their feelings how can you call that labor and what Hochschild wanted to do was to sort of study a shift in the capitalist economy that in the sort of late 70s and early 80s, while she was studying this phenomenon, it was something that was like very early on in its development and has obviously since sort of developed much further. But she was looking at the early stages of what we now call like the service economy and um, she was studying um, flight attendants. Um, and I think this is quite an interesting choice because it's like quite an early on in the development of like commercial airlines and like people traveling using airlines just because they want to go on holiday. Um, so there were a lot of people who were like quite scared of flying and the work that flight attendants were doing was trying to deal with other people's feelings, um, trying to make sure that people had like a sort of comfortable journey and trying to like deal with some of their like anxiety and like bad feelings that some people might have around like traveling in this way. She uses that work, which is like very gendered, very sexualized. If you look at how airlines are like advertising even today, they're often like using this promise of like um, emotional services as a way of like selling their products. She used that type of work as a way of like making a more general case about how the capitalist economy was increasingly reliant on people turning their emotional capacities into something that could be sold as part of a service. Um, The way I use this term um, is in a slightly broader way, which like might set off some (laughs) alarm bells for some people um, who feel a bit like anxious about this because it's so uncomfortable. 
thinking about the work that we do for each other as a form of work. But I want to use it in a way that also includes um, the types of unpaid work that people do in their homes, sort of looking after the emotional needs of family members, friends, like co-workers, as a way of saying like, this is also like work that can be part of quite exploitative relationships. And that is not like things that we just do for each other because we feel like it, but also like there is some kind of like compulsion around doing that work because that's basically the only way that we can feel like well enough um, to to live within uh, a capitalist society, to live within these um, social relations that we are sort of made to participate in. Is it a provocation in the style of a wages for housework, labelling this kind of um, more fluid uh, forms of social interaction and care and hanging out and being friends and having relations and that kind of thing as a form of work or is it a kind of a claim about the sort of the necessary relation between uh, like a mode of circulation of labour power or is it kind of both? Like how are you using the framework of work in this case? I think it's a, it's a provocation in the sense that I want people to think about um, how these activities happen and like who's doing it. Mm. Um, I guess for me, the usefulness of applying these terms like work or labour to things that we might not normally consider as work is that firstly, I think there's a lot of effort that goes into it. And just like naming this as work is a way of showing that it's also like draining. It's something that takes a lot of time And so I think there's like a usefulness in that framework just for that reason. I also think it's useful because it's a way of um, showing that these things that people do have like a real effect on the world. Um, And so while there might not be a product that you can sort of identify as like the outcome of this work, it has change something, has made something happen. The point of this work is exactly to sort of influence the emotional states of another person. And I think it's also important to say that it sort of um, impacts this the subjectivity of the person who's also doing this. And maybe that comes out more if we term this as work, because like we can think about how work is sort of impacting how we experience the world. There's also something here about like um, this as like a form of skill, like something that people are in a way like trained to do. And that might not be entirely like conscious. We're often not thinking that much about how we are meeting the needs of others or how we like become aware of other people's emotional needs. But it's definitely something that that some people are very good at and some people are sort of less good at. And I think that is also something that can fall along gendered lines. I mean, some of my best friends are men. <laughs> and, <laughs> so damaged again. And, and obviously some men are very good at like doing forms of like attending to the emotional needs of others and are very sort of attuned to those needs. 
but there are also a lot of men who are like, that's not my job. Like, that's not something I'm good at. And there's a sort of de-skilling is the term I use in the book where men are sort of saying that's not my responsibility because I'm not good at it. But it's like, if you think of it as work or if you think of it as a skill, you it's also something that people could like train themselves to do if they wanted to. Maybe the last reason that I think it's important to name this as work is that it's like much easier to see that sort of within a continuity of capitalist economies more broadly. Um, it's much easier to like politicize it um, and see it not as a result of just their personal feelings um, for their family members or whatever, but as like part of a much broader like economy that involves like circulations of goods and services and like how people uh, feel able to like keep going to work. Right. So what I'm what I'm kind of curious about is because of this uh, double nature of social reproduction that we talk about, right? It, uh, reproduces ourselves as workers, but also reproduces ourselves as, you know, people, as beings, right? And um, if we are kind of uh, at all interested in in the work of change, we need, there's uh, uh, always a possibility of resistance there, right? Mm -hmm. Of reproducing ourselves as people who uh, might be opposed to capitalism or people who might be just kind of doing tasks that, that that aren't absorbed or can't be absorbed uh, by capitalism or, or kind of in opposition to it in some way. So when we talk about emotional work mm. um, as work and there's a, a conceptual al alignment between work uh, in the care sector and emotional work and love, I'm wondering, um, I guess, what can be salvaged of the experience of love if we make those conceptual alliances, right? Because, you know, this is a, maybe it's, maybe I'm just being romantic, right? Maybe I'm just, to, to coin a phrase from Gramsci, may, maybe I'm just being, I don't know, Silver Federici of the intellect, Nora Ephron of the will here. <laughs> but, uh, because, but I look at this and I'm thinking, okay, if you are doing paid care work or coerced care work mm -hmm. in some way, is that a form of love? Like does the, does the if paid work is glossed as love, is love a kind of work inherently? I mean, I don't think everyone who does any form of care work is like feeling love for um, the people that they work with. I think it's very hard to do that work without some kind of emotional investment in it. Mm -hmm. um, but that emotional investment might just be that um, you feel like that's an inherently like worthwhile type of work because it's good to care for other people. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have like very strong emotional attachment to like everyone that comes into the like A&E way or work or whatever. Um, but I guess for me, the usefulness of thinking these types of work as a form of continuity is like by pointing to the fact that like it's often the same people who are performing it and they're often using the same types of skills so while it's not exactly the same like emotional um response that you have to it is often has a slight like similarity in 
just the like emotional structure and the emotional investment in ourselves as people who are like good at attending to other people's needs, who care for other people. So I think there's like a similarity in terms of like the way that people feel if they, for example, if they fail to do this work very well, that they might feel a lot of guilt that they're not doing this work of caring as well as they should. I think this is often used to like extract more work from like nurses and childcare workers um, because they, even if they don't like love all of the people they look after, mm -hmm. they still have a sense of attachment to those people and they will feel like if they not, if they're not giving those people like as much as they can, like giving them as much emotional care as they can, that means that they have sort of failed at being the people who they have like an investment in being. Um, and that's often like very gendered as well. Like there's a sense of like feeling not only like a bad person, but like a bad woman. <laughs> um, so I guess that's part of the reason why I'm interested in thinking these things together. That doesn't mean that they're exactly the same. I think a lot of people who do these things in a sort of more like professional capacity um, within their paid work often experience like forms of like resentment, um, mm. maybe even like anger, like having to use their like emotional capacities for like strangers who are never gonna give anything back to them. Like I think that's definitely a very real experience that is like not exclusive to um, doing this work in like a paid um, capacity, but is probably more common. I guess in terms of like what is there to sort of salvage with the concept of love or like I think that it's it's quite hard um, to disentangle them because if you don't think of love and work in opposition, like something can be both at the same time. Mm. That's why I'm like a little bit hesitant to think that there's like a form of love that we can like uncover and then that's going to be like free from capitalist influences. I think it's quite hard to know what that would look like, mm -hmm. but I think there are ways that we can um, start practice other forms of emotional care for each other, like other forms of being together, other forms of like supporting other people that are moving away from the very like privatized structure um, that a lot of this work has sort of taken on and maybe that's like <laughs> the best we can do like I don't <laughs> think we can like um, just say well we don't like this capitalist economy so we're gonna invent a, like a radical form of love that we can just like start living right now because we are all like shaped by the society and um it's very difficult to like just step outside of that. I'd love to delve into that entanglement a little bit more because there is this connection uh, between the sort of the alleviation of despair, right? The alleviation of the kind of maximal despair that would leave you perhaps like unable to turn up to work. And that is a very real thing that like, sort of many people have experienced, right? Um, why is partly why um, 
governments are flinging so much money into sort of CBT as a sort of as a technology, the psychic technology that helps you just kind of minimally be functional, right? Um, and we also know that uh, sort of the family unit is very good, or maybe our social relations more broadly is very good at kind of absorbing uh, some of that um, distress that is sown in the workplace, kind of very classic image of kind of feminist social theory is the idea of like a man is um, feels humiliated or depowered at work, comes home, takes it out on his wife. However, um, I, I'm curious as to, as to the kind of different modes in which capitalism might be disinterested in the alleviation of despair where it can rely on other kinds of systems of power other kinds of social technologies like race like borders um like prisons um to extract that kind of labor right like look at the most recent uh for instance world cup right the government was not interested in the kind of the the alleviation of despair because it had a system of indentured servitude mm-hmm. to rely on, right? It wasn't even really that concerned on, on whether or not people were dying because they could rely on it, their sort of rapid replacement, right? So I'm, I'm wondering in that context, how are we to understand the work of love when the connection between emotional reproduction and... Um, sort of what is classically understood as economic work, wage work, whatever, um, is is maybe a little bit more hard to establish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think it's really important to um, think through how some people are just either like permanently excluded from um, the workforce, right? You have this concept of surplus populations, mm-hmm. um, where it's like it basically matters very little to the state if those people live or die. It's important to have some people in that category because it's a way of having enough competition within the workforce that workers are constantly worrying about losing their jobs and having to become part of the surplus population of or of unemployed people. Um, but like who is in that category? how those people are living, how they're meeting their needs is not very important for capitalism, for for the state or for, for capitalists. I guess what's interesting about that is that they still have to police those people enough, discipline them enough so that they don't go and do something completely else so that they don't come up with a better way of satisfy, satisfying their needs. Um, so you have this idea of like a lot of people who are either like unemployed maybe not able to work and then the very like disposable workers often migrants who are like seen as maybe temporary workers that capitalisms can sort of draw into the workforce as and when they're needed and yeah there's very little care for the well-being um, of those groups within society, very little concern about like how migrants are going going to like live um, in the society because they're seen as like at best here to just like do seasonal work or whatever, and then 
it's not really a concern of the UK government. What happens to those people after that? To say the least. And I'm just <laughs> um, wondering how um, we are to kind of incorporate uh, this concept of the, the work properly understood of emotional work mm -hmm. into these into these sectors of capitalism because right they're no less part of like the the overall disciplinary system of capitalism than any other part of it right and mm. the, the kind of it's it's still a form of work very important form of work um but there seems to be kind of a, like a, a like a patchier relationship between the kind of the internal lives yeah. of of these uh, people to who are in these situations um and the sort of superstructure if you like i don't want to like romanticize this in any way. I think there are, I guess, a lot of ways that um, the things that people do is just like purely for survival here. And it's not really intended to be like political in any way. But I think with the fact that there are in some ways like less investment in like certain like more normative social forms, um, that are sort of sustained in order for workers to like keep functioning. Like those people who are not um, regarded as like as important for capitalist social reproduction have also like developed more antagonistic relationships to the state often. So I talk about this a little bit towards the end of the book. Groups who are like have experienced a lot of discrimination, like lots of lots of violence in the system and have sort of managed to cultivate other ways of surviving, other ways of caring for each other, other ways of meeting some of the needs. And this is not to say that those are like things that we can just like emulate or whatever to like build like an anti-capitalist movement. But I think there's something around here around like centering some of the experiences of those who haven't been sort of made to invest as much as like more normative forms of um, social reproduction and maybe haven't like invested as much in as in like bourgeois like family forms um, and who have like invented ways of surviving and sometimes even like experiencing like good feelings um, outside of this. It's really important to to look at the ways that people have like ma managed to survive at the margins of capitalist society um, and in forms of relationships that are often like not approved by the state um, and are therefore like often like quite violently suppressed. But I think that a lot of like alternative forms of care have sort of been developed here. You've talked a lot about uh, gender as a technology of work, citing uh, theorists like Helen Hester, and uh, you sort of go one step further to uh, describe performing gender as itself a kind of work understood as, as very connected to this kind of um, emotional labour. Yeah, I mean, partly this is related to this question of skill mm -hmm. and like what skill is as a form of embodied repetition of certain acts as like that in itself is developing a gendered subjectivity so that people like come to experience themselves as real women, real men, depending on what types um, of like work they are doing. 
I think there's also something here around how people are supporting each other and sort of affirming other people's gendered subjectivity, like the way that they experience themselves as gendered being isn't something that just happens. It's also like part of this work of like emotional labor. Like it's very important for a lot of people to experience their like gendered subjectivity as authentic and as socially validated. This work is like quite difficult to talk about because it's like, Mm. I don't think it's something that we like notice that much. People all the time are like affirming other people's like sense of themselves as like gendered beings. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, there have been like quite few studies of like what happens in heterosexual relationships from a like sort of more feminist sociological perspective, but like the studies that do exist, um, they show that like women are doing just a lot of work, like just affirming their partner's sense of themselves as like real men, you know, Mm -hmm. and as like confident, um, as like actors in the world, as like um, subjects who have some kind of like agency and control over how they like encounter the world. I just think that there's something there about like how women are like doing a lot of this work of like affirming that sense of being in charge, which is like kind of an essential part of masculinity in a way, because it's like the feeling of like being in control of your environment and being like a person who can sort of do things seems to be kind of core in contemporary understanding of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about that connection between a sort of an authentic self, an authentic series of of desires, an authentic series of ways in which we want to be uh, perceived by the world, and this connection that you you draw between those and the way and the kinds of desires and experiences that are, that are kind of useful for us to have experienced for society to be reproduced in a certain way that redounds to the benefit of capitalism, right? It leaves us with this question of, of about human nature, basically, about, you know, if we're talking about love, lots of people will, will turn to that kind of first person, very intimate feeling experience mm. as the seat of something like human nature something kind of universalizable this kind of act of bonding but if we apply a kind of a lens of this is this is work this is a skill and 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 not only that but as as you outline in the book our desires are produced through a set of socializations a set of expectations and that we perform a certain kind of work mm. what are we to to take away about (laughs) what we really want about like how we should orientate ourselves within that how we should learn to desire authentically that's like part of what feels exciting about this idea is that we could um learn to like design different ways that we could develop like new things uh new ways of being in the world being with other people 
that feel like less um, tied up with like structures of domination, whether that's capitalism or um, race, gender, whatever. Um, I think it's like an exciting possibility <laughs> that um, we could um, find other needs that are maybe like already present but aren't being satisfied in the in the current way that society is set up so I think it's about like developing those other kinds of needs those other kinds of desires in order to like also find ways of like reorganizing society you can think about the ways that you are with like um, your friends and maybe relationships with comrades as a way of thinking about like how forms of intimacy could like look very different from what's socially sanctioned right now. We're often told that like romantic relationships and family are the relationships that should matter most to us. But we also know that we have relationships that are not what's sort of the most like socially sanctioned or valued and like thinking about those possibilities of like exploring and expanding ways of being together ways of caring for each other that maybe lie outside the experience of just like going to work and doing your work and then going home to your family and trying to have as many of your needs met within that very constrained sphere and like exploring the desires that we already have for something that's like outside of that experience um, as a way of moving towards um, liberation, I guess. And like thinking about how our lives could be like really, really different in maybe ways that we can't really know at this time, but we can like glimpse. You write about outlaw emotions, the way in which the, sort of the experience of, of the domestic and of, of care work, of emotional work, kind of sit uncomfortably. The anger of the housewife is the kind of the, the classic example, mm-hmm. right? And the, basically, the fact that um, you know millions of women had to be sort of actively tranquilized as, as a way of underwriting the family unit for sort of many decades. Um, so within that, I'm just kind of wondering if if love can ever be an, an outlaw emotion as a kind of a, a, a seed around which kind of struggle can uh, can coalesce, sort of a mode of struggle, if we're understanding it as work that is inextricably bound up with the reproduction of capitalism. I'm worried, but sometimes when people use the framework of a politics of love, maybe because I don't, just don't really understand what that means, but... <laughs> um, I also think that we could try to like disentangle um, the ways that we reproduce for capitalism from um, the ways that we could reproduce ourselves as people who are trying to resist capitalism, Mm -hmm. who are trying to resist various forms of domination. Um, And it's difficult um, to do that, but um, the way that I use the concept of, of of emotional labor is also saying that we could be something different from like what we're currently made into. Um, and I think those like possibilities are like already here. Um, and 
the way that we sort of care for each other through networks of solidarity, um, through networks um, of like political resistance, uh, that's a way of like sort of withdrawing from um, the sense that emotion or like emotional care and support should be reserved for just a very small sphere of people and um, that we don't really have to care about anyone other than our most close group of people. Um, and I'm not sure that's like, say, that's maybe different from saying um, we can like uncover a sense of um, love, but I think there's like, we can definitely have very deep emotional connections with people around us that is, that is anti-capitalist, that is like trying to remove ourselves from this form of reproduction. I'd love to know more about those kinds of new modes, new practices through which we can relate to each other that might give us a glimpse of this, uh, new forms of emotional work that aren't so deeply entangled in all of these kinds of systems of um, exploitation. Um, the relationship between like queerness as a sort of who you fancy mm-hmm. in a kind of pat sense and queerness as, as a sort of as a structural relationship towards like the family unit and other kinds of uh, institutions because I'm wondering so what are the, the transformative demands that allow us to start practicing those more easily I'm things that spring to mind when I when I read about the politics of love I think things like well you know domestic abuse shelters are deeply romantic to me. UBI is romantic, right? Dismantling borders is romantic because it allows us to, to engage in forms of love that feel less underwritten by the kinds of violences that you're describing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think um, something I talk about in the book is like how solidarity is also a sense of like emotional openness to other people who might be very different from ourselves um and recognizing that we are in a shared struggle with these people who may be strangers or maybe like very close friends um that's a way that we can like expand our uh, emotional capacities and um expand the like the sphere uh, within which we are like doing various forms of emotional care um so for me that's something that i found like very just exciting about being part of political struggle is that you're suddenly coming into contact with these people that you wouldn't have known otherwise and you are now through your sort of shared investment in this struggle you have a sort of emotional like intimacy i think what i'm saying is not necessarily um that all women who are like in relationships with men necessarily like need to just dump your boyfriend or like get a divorce I think it's about sort of starting to both interrogate maybe what happens within those relationships but also like look to what other relationships could there be and like um, thinking about how we're spending our time and energy what relationships are most important for us even if we are at points like obviously very deeply invested in a romantic relationship with another person, like that doesn't mean that we can't um, 
have other sort of relationships of care that are also important in our lives. I think it's less about just completely breaking off with what is the sort of more normative forms of like being together um, because it's just it's really hard to do that Um, and I don't think anyone is like fully outside of like those structures but I think it's about finding ways that we can like expand like forms of sociality and the forms of sociality that we're part of in ways that I think that I hope could be like also less straining um it's like just after Christmas or we all probably um have like recent experiences or many of us have recent experiences um of just how tiring it can be to like spend an extended amount of time with your family in a very like <laughs> privatized setting and I guess um, I'm hoping that if we start practice emotional care and like ways of being together in a way that's less reliant on like one person being responsible for everything feeling nice within that social unit um, and we can do that in a way that's more like shared where we think about this as a form of skill and we are like actively trying to like um, make sure that everyone has the capacity to do forms of care for each other that that can also be a way of lessening the burden so we can do these forms of care in ways that are like less coercive that are hopefully like more enjoyable um that are hopefully like more like playful that doesn't have that sense of it's just like one person who has the like responsibility for making sure that everyone's feeling okay and on that note we shall have to leave it there thank you so much for joining us alva i've been your host eleanor penny this has been navara fm thank you all for listening Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.